1 in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, If you are new with us tonight, we've been walking through this verse by verse, and we are in chapter 4 tonight, um, and we're going to be talking about the lonely road to success. Now, again, if you're new with us, uh, you probably have noticed the theme of this whole thing is Jesus is hope, but you don't see the name of Jesus in Ecclesiastes. It was written a thousand years before Jesus walked on this earth, and Solomon, uh, the whole purpose of telling us in this book about his life is to tell us, I had everything. I was a king. I was the wisest man who ever lived uh, up until that point. He, he had everything anyone could imagine that would bring uh, joy and happiness and success. And he gets to the end of his life and he writes to us saying, I didn't find it in the things that I thought I was going to find it in. And so the reason we know that Jesus is hope is because we read every verse of the Bible in context of each paragraph of the Bible, in context of each chapter, in each book, and ultimately the entire Bible. And we know uh, a thousand years after Solomon, a man named Jesus came, and he, uh, he's hope. Because uh, Solomon talks about all of the stuff under the sun, and he says it's meaningless. The things we chase after, it's meaningless. But we've got to look above the sun. It's not about this kingdom satisfying us. It's about another kingdom, and so we're going to have to look to that kingdom. And so tonight we're going to talk um, about the lonely road to success in verses 4 through 16. How many of you guys are familiar with the saying, you missed the boat? Anyone ever tell you that? Hey, you missed the boat on that. In general, uh, that means that you had an opportunity and you didn't take it or you lost it, or you just completely missed the point in something. And we're going to see kind of three different themes tonight um, in these passages or in these verses where Solomon jumps from talking about uh, success and, and work and success in relationships and then success just in wisdom. But the big idea tonight is if you strive after success and whatever your idea of success is on this earth outside of God, uh, and, but you got no one to show, you got no one to share it with, uh, ultimately it's, it's meaningless. You miss the boat. I, this past weekend, finished up a project at the house. I had four ceiling fans, and we bought them several weeks ago, and I wanted to get them installed. Of course, it was hot. We didn't have AC for a while. You guys could relate. There? Anyone? Okay. Um, and, and so I installed the first one. It took like two hours because I'd never installed a ceiling fan, so I had to learn how to do it. And it's pretty simple, but when you don't know much about it, it takes a little bit of time. And then I installed the second one and the third one, and it was the end of the day, and I wanted to get this last one done, and it was the biggest one. And so I finished this thing up, and it's the moment of truth. I turn the electricity back on, flip the switch, and it starts to turn. I'm like, okay, here we go. Like, that, that's a good sign. And Silas, he's over there playing in the living room, and Tara, she's talking in the back, and and I'm just watching this thing turn. But then I hear, I hear this little tick, like tick, tick, tick. Every time it turns, I hear this tick. Like it's obviously, it's hitting something. And I realized, because I got this thing all put together, I realized the very end of this project, like when I could just be like, oh, it's perfect. It sounds great, wonderful. There's something wrong. It's going to more than likely require me to, to take this thing apart and to figure out where this little tick is. Because it's one of those things where if you walk into someone else's house, they're like, oh, sorry, my ceiling fan's all funny. It makes a weird noise. They're like, I can't even tell. And really, you wouldn't care, right? You'd be like, as long as it blows on me, it's, like, it's fine with me. But when it's your own house and you're the one who did it, you know every little flaw, right? And you know, it'd eat you up if you knew that that sound was there and you could have done something about it. And so anyway, I'm trying to listen to this. And Silas, he's like being an airplane over there. And Tara, she's talking. And I'm, finally, I'm like, I'm trying to hear. I said, shh. Tara, she kind of stood back. Oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, 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 you didn't. And Silas just looked at me like, huh? 
And I said, shh, I'm trying to hear this. Tara took Silas and said, let's go in the other room. I turn the electricity off. I take this thing all apart, and, and I put it back together, and I turn it on, and it's perfect, man. It's beautiful. I don't even hear any little tick at all. I'm like, I did it. I'm done. And I turned around because my boy was there the whole time helping me. I turned around, and he's nowhere to be found. And I realized in that moment when I shh him, he bailed. And I finished the project. I was successful, right? But I didn't have anyone to share it with. And Solomon's saying, I had everything, and I got to the end of my life, and I had lots of people around me, but I was still lonely. You ever been there? Sometimes the loneliest place you can be is a big city. Uh, sometimes the loneliest place you can be is with lots of friends and family and people all around you. You can still be lonely. So tonight, as you reflect on your life, as we walk through this, and you think about long hours, college degrees, hard work, everything you're investing in, are you going to get to the end of this thing and say, I missed the boat? Um, This is written so that we don't have to do that. And so how do you define success? Does it match up with how the Bible defines success? And if today just happened to be your last day on earth, you face God tonight, would you be okay with your priorities? What has been taking priority in your life this week, this month, this year? It's a good gut check. If you've got a Bible, feel free to open it up. Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 4. Again, this is tough stuff, but it's uh, beautiful when you see it in the big picture of all the Bible. He says, And then I observed. So he's just going from thing to thing to thing to thing in life. This is what I did. I used my entire life as an experiment to see what would bring happiness and joy. And he's bouncing from thing to thing. He says, then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this, too, is meaningless. So that's a big theme for Ecclesiastes. Everything under the sun, so here on earth, it's meaningless apart from God. If you don't have a relationship with God, if God's not in it, It doesn't bring the satisfaction you might think. It's like chasing the wind. Fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. And yet, better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. All right, on this road to success, the first thing we see is you've got to avoid the ditches. In verse 4 and 5, Solomon gives us two ditches. In verse 6, he gives us a little bit of hope. The first one This ditch over here, Solomon's saying, there's some people out there, in verse 4, that will literally work their entire lives just to keep up with the Joneses. Like They're going to work hard and relentless, and they're going to think that it's going to get them what they want, but ultimately it can't be satisfied. Because envy can't ever be fulfilled. Envy comes out of brokenness. And so you can't get enough of something to quench the hunger of envy. You just got to get a new heart. The heart is the issue, not the quantity. He says some people, they play the comparison game. And for them, the comparison game, keeping up with the Joneses, they see what other people have out there, and that's what leads them in life. And every direction they go is because they see someone else had something, and so I'm going to go over there. And now I'm going to go over here, and I see someone's got a family, I want a family, and they got a great job, well, I want a job like them. Is that you? Someone asked, what's the direction of your life? 
You say, well, I'm just trying to get a better job. Why are you trying to get a better job? Could you honestly say that you would be doing all the things that you're doing now if nobody was watching? Or if you weren't watching other people? There's an old sociologist in the 19th century. Um, Veblen was his last name. He coined two terms when it came to uh, the way that consumers um, purchased things. And one of them is invidious consumption. The other one is conspicuous consumption. And invidious consumption is the idea that when you buy something out there in the market simply out of envy because you see someone else has it, that's invidious consumption. And he coined that term. And you see this all the time with kids. How many times do you see two kids who have tons of toys around them and they're playing and they can have any toy they want, but they are fighting over one toy. And if neither one of them, if if the one kid wasn't there, that other kid wouldn't want that toy. But they only want that toy because they can't have that toy. Someone else got it. Silas, if he's eating his food and Tara and I don't have our food yet, he'll be content with his own food. The second we sit down at the table, that little three-year-old, he gets over his little grubby fingers trying to get up in our food and we say, get off of our plates. Eat your own food. He doesn't want his own food anymore. He just wants what he can't have. Is that you? The other one, conspicuous consumption, is when you purchase things because you want it to show your status. So in the wealth world, many people, they go to big charitable dinners and and they will pay hundreds or thousands of dollars into certain charities just because they want to be in that scene. They want people to know, I give generously. Or you see it with teenagers, they wear certain clothes, right? High schoolers want to drive certain cars. We all want to have a certain house in a certain neighborhood. Why? Because we want to show our status. We don't want to be below it. We just want to be there or above it. Does that describe you? Solomon's saying it doesn't lead anywhere good. It doesn't lead anywhere good. You say, eh, I don't know about that old sociologist thing. I don't think that's me. Well, listen, <laughs> If you live in 2017, you know we got a little trap called social media. Now, social media is a double-edged sword. It's beautiful on one hand. On the other hand, it's it's rough. Because what it does is it, it makes it to where your view on life is not rooted in reality. Right? So here's what I'm saying. Um, you check out someone like, okay, you work your day, you come home, everything's good. You're pretty content until you click on your Facebook feed or your Instagram and all of a sudden, how many times do you find yourself on a diet, not because you knew 10 minutes ago you wanted to be on a diet, but because you clicked and saw their before and after pictures? Or how many times were you pretty good with singleness until you clicked on their new profile picture and it shows them with their new boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or, or, or whatever, and you're like, gosh, they look so happy. All of a sudden, you want that again, don't you? And how many times do you find yourself cooking something in the kitchen, not because you're an amazing cook, but because someone Instagrammed some weird creation that they found on Pinterest, and you're like, if they can do it, I can do it. For some of us, that drives us. We don't even realize it, but it is dictating our lives. We say, why aren't we happy? It's because we're working towards just getting what everyone else has. That's called the wide road. Jesus says many take that. They don't find life there. You guys having fun yet? It doesn't doesn't take much. We're one verse in, right? It doesn't take much of Ecclesiastes to get you gut checking everything, right? I'll say this. Um, 
I'll say this as well, when it comes to social media, one, one reason why uh, it, it messes with us and it doesn't honor God is because what happens is when you see other people's life, they often portray the best part of them and it's not reality. And so you idealize their life and you trivialize your life. And what you have to realize is they don't have a perfect life and I don't need my perception of a perfect life. I need Jesus. And so what happens is you only see beauty in their life. You only see the flaws in your life. You can't be thankful for what you have and you desperately want what they have. God says that's not grounded in reality. They're not perfect, and you're not as jacked up as maybe you think, but both of you need Jesus. Both of you need Jesus. He just happens to be perfect and life. That's not you. How about verse 5? There's another ditch. So one ditch says, let's run this race until we die. The other ditch says, let's not even start crossing the starting line. Let's not even get going. Now, some of your translations might be a little different, but here's essentially what verse 5 is saying. It says, some people are lazy. They're so lazy that it's going to bring them to ruin. Like, they're irresponsible people. You want to read about work and um, working hard and getting things. Look at Proverbs. Solomon wrote most of Proverbs, and there's all kinds of stuff about the sluggard, right? Like you got to get out there, you got to work, you got to provide for your family. It says, fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. we got a whole culture right now, and if you're under the age of 30, I encourage you, realize, some of us, we get to the end of life and realize that we weren't a product of our personality or even our upbringing, as much as sometimes we're a product of our culture. And our culture right now, especially, again, if you're young, our culture right now wants to make people entitled, and they want people to be viewing themselves as victims. We got that. That's our culture. We, we want handouts. Some people will vote on the next president based on who gives me the most handouts. And, and, and these people often... Um, are irresponsible, they don't want to work, and, and they cling to people who are responsible because someone has to carry the check, right? Someone's got to carry the check. Solomon's saying, this is another ditch. You don't want to head here. Sometimes um, you find these people, um, they reject reality. They want people to bend to their reality and it feels like if you're having a conversation with them because some of us might know those people that they're kind of like immovable objects they don't want to change and we have conversations with them about growing up about being an adult about working hard it's like it's like they don't even hear it and you say i'm speaking rational things to them but it's just it's just not clicking why don't they want this why don't they want to get something done in life and to do something in life and accomplish things but they don't want it why because when (laughs) You don't have to experience the consequences of reality. Someone else is for you. Why would you want that to change? And you say, what do I do if I'm living with someone or I love someone or I know someone who, who is just the lazy sluggard that Solomon talks about not only here but all throughout Proverbs? What do I do? Well, ultimately, you can't change their heart. God needs to change their heart. Um, but one thing you can do on the practical side, and some of you are going to be haters when I say this. You're going to say, that doesn't sound very Christian-like. Let them experience the consequences. Because responsibility shifters are blame shifters and they are pain shifters. Because here's the deal. We live on earth. 
and there are consequences for actions. And if we make sure that the irresponsible people uh, around us, even if we are that irresponsible people, if, if they end up shifting the responsibility of their life, they can't pay their bills, so we pay their bills. They can't wake up on time, so we got to wake them up on time. They can't grow up, so we try to grow up for them. We try to convince them to want something out of their life. Someone's got to experience the pain and the consequences. And as long as you're the one experiencing the pain and consequences for their life decisions, why would they ever change? You minister to enough 60, 70, 80-year-old mamas who wonder why their kids won't move out from their basement or why their kids always ask them for stuff when they're 40, 50 years old and say, they just, they just need a little help here. They just need a little help here. They just need a little help here. And you say, that breaks my heart. But they don't want them to experience the consequences. Sometimes it's good if they throw everyone away from them, let them be lonely a little bit. And let them, let them experience what it's like to pay their own bills, to be their own alarm clock. So, feels like we need a better solution. Verse 6. And yet better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. Here's ultimately what he's saying. Um, Solomon's saying there, there's a place of contentment. So there's these ditches where one works so hard chasing after the wind, one doesn't work at all, and that's in vanity still. But there's this middle ground where you can be content. It's better to have a little bit of something in your hand and have peace. That, that word quietness can also be translated in the Hebrew peace. Contentment than it is to be working like a madman and to not have any peace in your life. Let me just ask you this question. How, how busy is your schedule right now? Are you swamped? There's a reason, um, if you see our Facebook page, we, we posted a testimony um, a couple days ago, a testimony about sports and getting caught up in their kids' sports and, and getting to the end of it all and thinking, man, was that... Was that worth it? Was that, well, we should have been spending all that time. And we know because our culture gets consumed with that. We get so busy, man, we don't know what contentment's like. We don't know what it's like to, to have some peace in our life with Jesus. We can't focus on Jesus. We're a, a generation of pastors who have to realize or, or minister to people out of the chaos instead of saying, hey, you can have this daily devotion or you can spend some time with Jesus alone. People are like, I don't got time, I ain't got time, I ain't got time. There's the old 70% rule. There's a million time management uh, books out there that will tell you about the 70% rule. If you are in a congregation like this and you say, when, when do you need to have add you know, uh, another service or go to a new building? And they say 70%. When it's 70% full, that feels like 100% full. When people walk into a church that's 70% full, it feels to them like this is all the way full, even though there's 30% of the chairs open. In your life, in your week, in your day, if you schedule yourself out 70% of your day, it feels full. And there's the law of diminishing returns, that if you say, I'm going to schedule myself out 80, 90% of the day, you actually get less back. Because what happens is you're so packed full of stuff in your day that if one thing goes wrong, it takes you way more effort than it should to correct that. And now everything else, like that pendulum swing, everything is now messed up because you've got to push this back and that back and there's this and that, and it throws the whole day out of whack. You've got to be careful. What Solomon's ultimately saying is it's good to be able to breathe a little bit and to not have such a busy schedule that you can bless people, that you can help people, that you can be in a position where you are available to people. How many of us are available to anybody? 
Because our culture right now thinks if you just get busy, you can accomplish something. If you just accomplish something, you'll find joy. And God's saying, maybe y'all are headed down the wrong path. I'll leave it at this. We're going to stop two more places tonight. But before we leave these few verses, I'll tell you, here's how the gospel changes this. Ephesians 1 says you got every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So for those of you struggling with verse 4, you say, I envy and I do want to to match the success of everyone else. Uh, The Bible says, you as a Christian by nature have everything you need in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing, any way you could possibly be blessed spiritually, if you got Jesus, you got that. There's no need to, to, to be envious and to hunger after more. You can't get any more and any better than Jesus. And if you're in verse 5 and you say, man, what does the gospel help me? How does the gospel change me in verse 5? I, I'm, I am lazy. I don't got any, any real motivation. Well, you go from Ephesians 1 to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 says that you're saved by grace, not by good works, but that you were also, in verse 10, created for good works before the foundation of the world. You exist for a reason, for a purpose, and it's not to do nothing. It's to do something. It's not to earn your way to salvation, but to live out your salvation. God's got good works for you. He's got purpose for you. And if you're not motivated to find out what are those, how can I walk in those, then you're missing the boat. And ultimately, if you want this contentment verse 6 talks about, you're only going to find that in Jesus. There's a physical rest, a Sabbath rest that they tell us about in the Old Testament, and the New Testament tells us there's a spiritual rest in Jesus. You can only find that rest in Jesus. Verses 7 all the way through 12. This will be the main chunk talking about relationships tonight. Some of you are going to recognize these verses. They're preached on fairly often. Verse 7 says, as he moves to kind of a new topic, I observed yet another example of something meaningless under the sun. This is the case of a man who is all alone, without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. Remember, tonight when we talk about being alone, this isn't condemning singleness. This isn't condemning someone who doesn't have a spouse. This is talking about de-emphasizing relationships, namely one with God, and emphasizing everything else. So don't, don't do that. But then he asks himself, who am I working for? So he goes, he gets everything. He's like, I'm going to work hard. And he finds one day, who am I working for? I ain't got no one to share it with. Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It's all so meaningless and depressing. (laughs) This is is so encouraging. I'm trying to preach it to the best of my abilities. It says what it says, though. Verse 9, it's all so meaningless and depressing. If this is your first time at cross training, I promise it gets better than this. might not be with me preaching, but I think it gets better than this. Verse 9, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other person can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep, wa- keep each other warm. And the campers said, amen. But how can one be warm alone? Verse 12 says, a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Second thing we see on this road to success, you've got to avoid the ditches, but you also got to embrace your co-passengers. How many of y'all have been on a really, really long road trip? 
one that like you remember details about and you know you ain't ever going to forget them. How many of those details had to do with the people who were in the car with you? Right? Like most of them probably involve you being bored at some point and then having a weird conversation and then you guys decided to do something weird and then you stopped in some weird side show attraction and they're like, there's all kinds of stories we have from road trips. But they generally are memorable because not where we go or even how long it took, but who we were with, right? Got to embrace who's along this ride with you. Solomon, he, um, he had a lot of people in his life. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, mistresses. He had thousands of people at his beck and call all the time. Yet if you go back to verse 7, he says, I observed all this. He talked about relationships. We're about to say, relationships are awesome. And he's saying, it felt meaningless to me. Anyone ever felt like that when we talk about relationships? Uh-oh, here the, church, the pastor's talking about relationships. Feels meaningless to me. <laughs> I don't want to hear about relationships right now. I don't want to talk about this. Solomon seems a little bit lonely. Not too long ago, I heard a, a pastor give an example. I did some professional research and Googled an article as a joke, right? They, they lighten up. We can do it. We can, we can laugh a little bit. But I want to read bits and pieces of it to you. It's called The Melancholy Billionaire. A couple years ago, there's an old boy who uh, created Minecraft. You guys know about Minecraft? Supposedly some game, people play it. I have never played Minecraft or know anything about it. But he sold it to Microsoft for $2.5 billion. All of a sudden, you're interested in Minecraft, aren't you? <laughs> $2.5 billion. So now he can do whatever he wants to do. And one of the weekends after he had sold this, in the first few months, um, he, he tweeted some things that made them at CNN want to write an article about it. It said that Marcus Notch Pearson is pretty unhappy, unhappy with his life and his huge wealth. Um, since he sold his game to Microsoft about a year ago, he bought a 23,000-square-foot mansion in Beverly Hills for $70 million. So he's like, he's paying cash, right? $70 million, and he's still probably paying cash. says that he reportedly outbid um, Beyonce and Jay-Z, but even those luxury digs weren't enough to make him happy. And he tweets this. He tweets this. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying, and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. That's kind of profound. He says, if you get everything you ever wanted in the world, you realize since no one else has it, you can't relate to anyone anymore. They don't want to hang out with you, and you don't have what you originally were hoping that you would have. He goes on to say, in Sweden... I just sit around and wait for my friends with jobs and families to have time to do stuff, watching my reflection in the monitor. I got everything there is to want. I got all the money, but oh yeah, all the people I want relationships with have normal jobs and lives. And I just sit around waiting for them to get off work. Like, this isn't like a fairy tale. This is real life. He goes on to say, when we sold the company the biggest effort, this is another tweet, went into making sure the employees got taken care of, and they all hate me now. 
It goes on in another tweet and says, found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle and went with a normal person instead. Pretty encouraging. So you don't have to listen to Solomon. Even the secular world is saying we, we got a little bit of a taste of it. And it wasn't all that it's cracked up to be. Relationships are good. Relationships are what you were created for. You think of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You ever wonder why God shows himself in Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Well, I'm not God, so I can't tell you. But it's interesting that he shows himself as in community with himself. You read the Gospel of John, and this the fourth Gospel written after all of the other three were written, and John, who is the best friend of Jesus, gives this intimate look about Jesus' life, and you see great intimacy between Jesus and the Father, and he abides in the Father, and he talks about this relationship with the Father, and then he talks a lot about the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit talks about Jesus, and you see this incredible intimacy within God himself. And then he says, we're created in that image. We're created for relationships. We need it. You look at the whole theme of the Bible. What, what's the overarching theme of the Bible? That God created us, and we were in what with him? Relationship with him. And then because of sin, we were separated from him. And then the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that we can have a relationship with the Father again. We don't have to be separated because of our junk, that the blood of Jesus can cover us because of his death on the cross, his resurrection, that we can have new life eternally. That's the good news, is that you can be in a relationship. And yet some of us, have, because we're broken and we live in a broken world, have been so jaded by relationships that we don't want anything to do with them anymore. And the devil wants you to not just experience that, he wants you to walk in that. Let me give you three real quick common ways that the devil wants you to view. These are three broken lenses that he wants you to view relationships. First one is isolation. He loves this. This is where he gets you to the point. You ever been in a conversation with someone where you're like, okay, this is going nowhere? And you just thought, oh, I'm washing my hands of this. I'm bowing out. Or you had family issues and you're just like, you know what? I'm just not going to call them for a long time, like maybe ever. <laughs> or you were in a relationship and it went south and you're like, okay, done with dating forever. You're just sold on it. Or, or you just get to the point where you say, I daydream about living in the mountains or somewhere where there's no people. Any of you, can anyone relate on any of this? The devil says, that's what I want. I want to get you to the point where you say, I don't need them. I don't need them. But I can tell you firsthand, when we were in Utah, the biggest tactic of the enemy, get people away from other Christians, and when they're isolated and they don't have wise counsel, he would beat them to a pulp. Lies and deceit and all kinds of stuff. They didn't know what to do with it. He wants you to look through a lens of brokenness. You ever been in a relationship that just got so messy and they were broken and you were broken, but you blamed them for their brokenness and they blamed you for your brokenness and everyone was broken. And then finally you said, let's just get away from it. I don't want relationships because they're too hard. Why is the divorce rate high? People bow out because it gets too hard. Some of us look through relationships on earth through a wounded, a hurt lens. You get wounded enough and you start to see anyone who comes towards you, they got bad motivations. I don't want them. They're going to hurt me. I, I'm not healed from what happened before. I can't start anything new. And so you're walking wounded. Some of you are there. 
But the gospel changes it because Jesus says, I'm going to I'm going to teach you there's value in relationship. I died so you can be in relation with the Father and you can be in relation with each other. And and I'm going to teach you that, yeah, people are broken, they're messed up, but I'm going to transform them. I'm going to give my spirit to sanctify them and I'm going to give you the foundation of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And oh, you're hurt, I'm going to heal you. I can do that. My blood can heal you. Do you believe that I can heal you? This is why the church is beautiful because it's true. We suffer from all three of these things, but we got Jesus and Jesus says, I want to redeem it. I want to change it. Solomon in, this, in these verses give us four, four blessings that come with having good company, good co-passengers in life. Verses 7 and 8, he tells us it's good to have people because you've got something to share life with. He said, this is the case of a man who is all alone without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can, but he asks himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? Why am I working 14-hour days, 16-hour days, when everyone else is enjoying life? Why am I working holidays when everyone else is hanging out? And it all was so meaningless and depressing. It's good to have some one to share life with. You know, we teach our children to share, right, when they're playing with each other, but we don't just tell them to share because it's right. We tell them to share because it's better. It's better to have friends. It's better to have people, loved ones, with you to enjoy life with. Our culture don't like that. You know what's cool now, right? You look at the age of people getting married and the age of people having kids, and it's increasing isn't it you got people who are in their 30s who have never married and this big social gatherings you go to a city bigger than salina and you see it all over the place you see people who used to be the 22 23 24 year olds now they're the 28 the 30 the 32 the 34 year olds all choosing to be single and and not marrying now or just putting it off maybe forever And then even those who do get married are now getting married at an older age and having kids at older ages. Because why? Well, there's lots of reasons. One reason is they want to work more. They want to go get their dreams. They want to do what they want to do. And having a family, they just don't have the same value in many cases. Not every case. I don't want to generalize the whole thing. But in many cases, they just say, I'd rather go work hard and get some dreams accomplished than to start a family right now. I, uh, for my 30th birthday a few years ago, when we were planting a church in Nebraska, when you're going to go on vacation and you live in the middle of Nebraska and you know you got to drive and you got like a one-year-old, your options are very limited. I don't know if you are familiar with Nebraska. It's like Kansas, but worse. And so there's, there's just not much fun. So we're like, well, haven't been to Mount Rushmore. That's a great 30th birthday bash. Let's go up to uh, the Badlands and, and go through all of that South Dakota. We're never going to do it otherwise, so let's just do it now. We're already halfway up there. So we did that. And um, while we were up there, uh, we went, of course, to Mount Rushmore. And we were walking up to see all these faces up on this hill. And um, if you wonder why it's in Mount Rushmore, why they would carve faces there, it's because there's no other reason anyone would ever go to South Dakota if they didn't do that. And so we were walking up to this, and it was kind of cool. You know, you see the faces, and they are huge, and there's people from all over the world, all kinds of nationalities there, and different languages being spoken. If you ask me, though, about those faces and 
how awesome they were, I couldn't tell you much about it, to be honest with you. All I can tell you about it is this little pumpkin boy here. You see, we didn't have warm enough clothes, and so he only had this bedtime onesie. It was a pumpkin because it was October. And so he's wearing this little pumpkin suit with his funny hat. You could tell how pumped he was about it all. And as we're walking through this, people all from all these nationalities, they're, they're looking at him like, he's so cute, he's so cute. He's Tara and I are like, oh gosh, what is going on? But even as we got up there, we're taking pictures. As you can see, <laughs> we're, we're more focused on these faces down here than maybe those faces up there. As he's about to fall asleep, um, we're taking pictures. But when I think about that in my mind, I think about that trip, all I think about is my little boy in a pumpkin suit and, and how silly it was, but also, like, like that's my boy. And I don't care about Mount Rushmore. Was it cool? Yeah. I care about my boy. I care about my wife. I care about who I was there with. Because life isn't about, again, where you're going sometimes or how you can get there, but who you're with. Who you're with. Verse 9 and 10. He says, you got to have someone to share it with. He says, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other person can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. So Solomon says, relationships are a blessing because you get to share life with people, but also because you get to serve with people. You and I, again, we were created to serve. That's why the American dream causes so much issues. It's about serving, but it's self-serving. That's why it's hard. People who say, I want a family, I want relationships, I want a relationship with God, but I also want the American dream because God's saying, it's self-serving and the nature of faith in me is selfless. But you're gonna have to give yourself to me and what if my plan for you isn't the American dream? And so most of us have this struggle back and forth, right? See, when you find yourself investing more in your own success than relationships, than on the days when things aren't going so well, you got no one to lift you up. Solomon's saying, relationships are good because there's going to be days where right now you might not think you need people. There's going to be days where you need somebody. And you're going to look around and say, maybe I'd, I didn't emphasize that enough. Think about the people who are most important in your life. Who are they? No, you, didn't, you ain't got to tell me. But who are they? Aren't they the people who have been with you during the tough times? When everyone was running out of the fire that was your life and whichever season of life that might have been, these people were walking into the flames. But you've got to fight to serve people because we live in a culture where we can pay people to serve us. You need advice, you can pay a therapist. You need someone to help you with your house, you can pay someone for home repair. You need someone to help you with your illness, take care of you, you just go to the doctor's office. There's nurses for that. So we've positioned ourselves to where we don't need people to serve, and God's saying, you've got to fight for it, you've got to want it. But when you look for ways to serve people because of Jesus, you realize, you've got to realize this is the heart of God. He came to, not to be served, but to serve, Mark 10, to give his life as a ransom for many. Who are you serving right now? says, verse 11, it's a blessing to have someone to comfort. You got someone to comfort? Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. 
But how can one be warm alone? Now, physically, you know, if it's freezing out, of course, back in the day, they're going to have an undergarment and an outer garment. Outer garment's going to be like a light coat, but it's also going to be their blanket at night. If it's cold, you need someone for body heat. How many of you got good body heat from your iPhone? It's not that good for body heat, is it? And Solomon's saying it's good to have someone around to comfort. Emotionally, I think, as well as physically. What's the first thing you see in Genesis that God says this isn't good? He creates a whole bunch of stuff, right? Six days, he creates it all, and he says it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. What's the first thing he says isn't good? Anyone know? For man to be alone. For man to be alone. It's good to be with people. I love, listen, when I'm, at, when I'm home alone and Silas and Tarragon and, and it's just silence, it feels weird now. It wouldn't have been that way years ago before I had either one of them. It just feels weird now. It's comforting to have people with you. This is why we talk about last week, and I'll mention it again, the ministry of presence. Sometimes you don't have the right answers for the people in your life and you want to give them the right answers, but just you being with them can represent God's presence in their life. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit is going to be our comforter, right? That's what Scripture says the Holy Spirit is for one of the many reasons. But to be present with someone is a huge blessing. Let me mention real quick before we move on that social media double-edged sword again. It gives us more opportunities to stay connected with people in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise, which is a blessing. You're on the road, and you can know what's going on as if you're sitting next to someone. But on the flip side, it gives you an illusion of intimacy. It gives you an illusion of intimacy. You see, true intimacy ultimately requires proximity. You can be away from someone for a while, but you can't ultimately have a healthy, long, 50-year marriage when you only see them on FaceTime alone. You see, social media, technology, it can aid in a good relationship, but it can't replace a good relationship. And some of us right now think that we're connected to people and we're there to comfort people. We're not connected to people. We're behind a screen. But the illusion is, I'm with you. I'm there. I commented on your status. I liked it. I even gave you the little heart thing. I love it. I'm waiting for more emojis from Facebook so I can really tell you how I feel. But there's no replacement for you being with them. Ultimately, the presence of God. (laughs) Saying, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Talk about comfort. Last but not least, he tells us in verse 12, got to have someone to protect. He says, person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Man, when we think of conflict, most of us only think of bad, right? But conflict has some beauties to it. One of them is that it shows human affection for one another and that who stands up and fights for you is huge. This is why soldiers have a bond together because they fought together, not against each other, but with each other. Like, I know what it's like to have someone standing there fighting for me. Do you have anyone to fight for you? Are you fighting for anyone else? Do you have coworkers? Do you have people in the church that when you see people attack them, you, you realize, hey, don't, don't gossip about them. Don't slander them. And I'm going to stand with them. And ultimately, you know God 
is a protector of his children. And he's going to take care of you. That's the beauty. Relationships are good. Ultimately, the best one is with Jesus. Let's finish this out tonight with verses 13 through 16. He says this, And it's better to be poor but a wise youth than an old and foolish king who refuses all advice. Such a youth could rise from poverty and succeed. He might even become king, though he has been in prison. But then everyone rushes to the side of yet another youth who replaces him. An endless crowd stand around him, but then another generation grows up and rejects him, too. So it is all meaningless, like chasing the wind. All right, last but not least, we'll rock and roll the last few minutes on this road, you see, wisdom says take the narrow road. So you avoid the ditches, you embrace your co-passengers, and you take the narrow road. Here's what Solomon is ultimately saying. He's saying it's good and it's valuable to have wisdom, but here's a few places that don't necessarily guarantee wisdom. Let me tell you four places real quick. The first one is age. Age. Some people think, well, as I get older, I'll naturally learn and naturally become more wise, right? You ever thought that? Right? But, but he's saying, there's some youth who are wise, and there are some old people who are foolish. Just because you get older doesn't mean you necessarily learn from your mistakes. Right? Age is not a guarantee of wisdom. He also shows us that uh, your social class isn't necessarily going to be. You know, the wealthy people say, well, I'll send my kids to a private school. They'll get smart. They'll have wisdom. The poor say, I can't give them that, but we're going to go through the school of hard knocks. We'll get some wisdom there. And ultimately, you can go through a private school and not be that smart, and you can go through the school of hard knocks and not ultimately be wise. It's no guarantee. Then he says, hardship. Though that guy has been in prison, and he he could be something. Some think that, well, wisdom ultimately always is going to come from hardship. Like, if you go through hard stuff, you're going to learn. No, people have read Ecclesiastes. They've seen and observed the hardship of of, uh, Solomon and what he experienced and still make the same mistakes, right? Like, there's people who are alcoholics, and then their kids see they're alcoholics, and then their kids see that they became alcoholics, and their kids see that they became alcoholics, and say, why is there this cycle going? Because just because you went through something bad doesn't mean you're wise on the other side. Last but not least, fame. Endless crowds stand around him until they go to the next king, right? We think, well, if I had to sit down and have dinner with anyone in the world, would it be just an average person down the street, or would it be like a celebrity? How many of you would pick the celebrity? Right, because you think by sitting with them and learning and gleaning from them that they have ultimately got more wisdom than the rest of us. And Solomon's saying, listen, I was at the top of the mountain. I had a perspective that no one else had. I had everything. I had everything. I had everything. And yet, I regret so many things in life. And I'm at the end of this thing. And I'm lonely. You want to know how things ended for Solomon? When he died, his son Rehoboam ruined the kingdom almost immediately. Another commander, Jeroboam, came and took it from him, and the kingdom, the 12 tribes of Israel, were divided. They never united again. Solomon was famous. He was wise. 
Solomon's realizing at the end of this, maybe I got to redefine success. You know, there's a king that came a thousand years after Solomon who walked a lonely road as well. Um, but he's a king of a different kind. Didn't look like Solomon. No, he was poor. He was an average guy. But success for this king was different. His kingdom looked different. And he walked a lonely road when to Calvary, spitten on, beaten, broken, bruised. He did the opposite of what you and I do. You and I say, if I'm going to get successful in life, I might have to leave some people behind. Jesus, <laughs> through the Father, says, my idea of success is Jesus forsaking himself so that you can have relationships. Ultimately with me, he says. So he dies a lonely death on a cross where the very people who are killing him are the very people he's dying for. The very kingdom that he is ushering in is the one that those people in front of him reject. But it's good news because he is a king and he is coming back and he does have a kingdom and we can live in it. And it is spiritual right now, but one day it will be physical. And we get to be a part of that. You see, we started this tonight saying that there's a lonely road to success. And from a secular point of view, it's not that good. Solomon's affirming that. But there's a whole nother road to success where wisdom says, take this narrow road where success isn't the best house, all the money, the best job, everything that I envisioned. But it's obedience to Jesus. It's a walk with Jesus. It's repentance. It's turning from sin and embracing life in Christ. And I'll simply leave you tonight with this one last analogy. So we're running out of time. How many of you all watch the show Gold Rush? Any of you seen that on, on the Discovery Channel? I'm kind of a nerd for stuff like that. We don't have cable, but if we go to a hotel room or something, Tara and I, we fight a little bit on who, who gets the remote because I, I want to watch something weird like that. It's like a train wreck. Season after season, you see these guys going up into the Yukon, into Alaska, and, and mining for gold. Because here's the deal. They all know under the surface there are things of great value. And so they invest what? All their money, their resources, their time, their energy, their whole summer, their lives. They sacrifice relationships, everything for this. And you and I want to watch it. Why? Because we think, oh, man. Even though the gold rush in the old 1840s taught us most <laughs> strike out and it's devastating, what's going to happen with them? Because when you commit to digging in an area and you go down and you invest, you're in. Sometimes there's no turning back. You get one shot at it. But for the few who do dig in the right spot and invest in the right place, they find gold. And even a little bit will satisfy because they hit pay dirt. And it's like life. When you leave here tonight, you remember Solomon's painting a picture of what most of the world invests in to give them success and happiness. And he's saying, apart from God, it's a wide path that's going to lead to destruction. But there's a narrow road in following Jesus that at this point in time, Solomon didn't even know about. And it leads to life. And when you get even a little taste of it, oh, you know you found something eternally valuable.
Invest in the right spot. It's Jesus. Let's pray.